If you would, take your Bibles with me and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Hopefully, the last time I say chapter 13, as we come to the last passage of Luke 13 this morning. Now, we all know, I, I at least hope we all know, that the only reason we have salvation is because the Lord willed it to be so. The only reason the world has the offer of forgiveness and the offer of eternity in heaven with Christ is because God desires it. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? An often overlooked truth, but wonderful. God desires to save sinners. On top of that, the only reason you and I have salvation is not just because God desires it, but also because God couldn't be stopped in His pursuit of it. Nothing could get in the way of Christ and His mission of dying on the cross, being buried and resurrecting and ascending to heaven to declare you righteous before God and prepare a place for you for eternity. Because nothing could trip Him up because nothing could hold him back, because nothing could force him in a different direction, because nothing could change his mind, you and I know the blessed salvation of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful truth we come to consider today in Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, in verses 31 through 35, the end of the, the chapter, is one of the most intriguing texts of Scripture in the Gospels. The first half of it is found nowhere else. The second half of it is found in one other place, and that's in the Gospel of Matthew. And in both halves, Jesus is speaking in idioms, in illustrations, in parables, in symbolic language that is actually somewhat difficult to interpret. Now, every text of Scripture, and you've heard me say this before, has a singular uh, point and singular message. It's called the point of the passage, the P.O.P., and that's what we study, that's what we pursue when every time we dissect a text of Scripture. There may be sub-lessons in each passage that we can glean here and there, but each text has an original intent of the author, communicated to that author through the Holy Spirit, and that's the point of the passage. This particular text is difficult in finding the point of the passage. Yet, we can walk away from it and say, without a doubt, this is... The glaring reality of what Jesus is saying. It's a negative text of Scripture, and yet it yields positive truths about Jesus Christ. So we come to a text today where Jesus is defending himself, and yet we can walk away today, you and I, with the strength, the confidence, and the hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we learned something about the heart of our Savior here today and His commitment to see you redeemed and in heaven with Him. Look with me in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. Luke reports and he writes about our Lord and he says, At that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, 
I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the, th and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right off the bat, you can see some confusing language going on here. And you kind of wonder, how, how do these words and sentences and phrases of Jesus synthesize together? How do they all blend into one coherent thought? Well, they do, even though it might be difficult to see on the surface. The first thing we want to come to consider is found in verse 31. There's an unwelcome company coming into Jesus' presence as he's teaching. As often is the case with, case with Jesus' ministry, he's teaching crowds of people and he's interrupted by Pharisees. Now this is one of the, one of the most intriguing encounters that, that the Pharisees have with Jesus. They approach him with a warning and or a threat their language to the Lord in verse 31 is serious and it's urgent. A gentleman named Herschel Hobbes, as he was considering this verse, translated what they were saying this way. He says that they are saying, get out immediately and keep on going, for Herod keeps willing to kill you. It's a progressive kind of language. It's not a one momentary statement, but it's a continued keep running away from Herod because he keeps growing in his desire to kill you. Now what's intriguing about this text of Scripture is that we never see Jesus and the Pharisees in a good light together. So we wonder why are they coming to warn him about a potential danger. They don't work well together. They don't get along. The Pharisees actually hate Jesus. As soon as Luke chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, verse 53, actually in verse 37 through 54, Jesus has been pronouncing woes on the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers. And then in verse 53, Luke says this, he says, As Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The very next text, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees. Later on, we find the Pharisees are not just seeking to catch him in a lie or catch him blaspheming. They're trying to catch him and kill him. They want to destroy him. The relationship between the two groups, it's not a friendly one. There are a few occasions where Jesus is respectful and polite and welcoming and warm to a Pharisee or a couple Pharisees. In fact, he might even be found dining in one of their homes for a moment, but he's very stern with them. He's very forceful with them. And certainly he's not on good terms with the group of them. Yet this group of Pharisees come, and here they seem to be trying to help Jesus by warning him. We have to wonder and question if that statement of theirs, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you, is true or not because it actually may not be true it might be a lie there's three things we can consider several possibilities here number one 
we can conclude that the Pharisees are telling the truth. In verse 31, Herod wants to kill him, and they're trying to help him out. That is not plausible, really, as we consider their relationship. The second possibility is that these Pharisees are acting on Herod's behalf. Jesus is in a place, a region called Perea. That's Herod's territory. Herod Antipas is the one who's in control here. He's the son of the first Herod we encounter in Luke when Herod tells the wise men, tell me where Jesus is at so I can go worship him. And then he kills all the, the male children two years and under because he can't find Jesus. This is the son of that gentleman. He doesn't come from a great family tree, does he? And Jesus is found to be in his territory. In fact, in verse 31, Jesus is not very far from where John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded by this very same Herod. It might be that Herod thought Jesus was John incarnate. That John has come back from the dead. It was posed to Herod in Luke chapter 9, that very possibility, as Herod was hearing of the popularity of Jesus, maybe by this time in chapter 13, he's come to believe it. If you look in Luke 9 verse 7, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and by others that maybe Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And from that moment he sought to see Jesus. Maybe by Luke chapter 13 now, he thinks and has come to believe Jesus actually is. John come back from the dead. And he wants him gone. And yet for fear of Jesus' popularity, much like we saw with John the Baptist, he didn't immediately kill John the Baptist because John had such a wide following. Maybe the same reasoning here with Jesus, I don't want a, a riot on my hands. Maybe he says, I'll simply try to scare Jesus away by sending the Pharisees to warn him. That is the most likely explanation of verse 31. The Pharisees have come on behalf of Herod incognito to try to scare Jesus out of Perea back into Judea. In fact, Jesus is going to make a connection to them in verse 32 when he says, go and tell Herod. I know you guys are in cohorts together. The third possibility is simply that the Pharisees are lying and they themselves want Jesus out of Perea back to Judea because they have the most power and authority in Judea to catch him and crush him. Regardless, the statement of verse 31, regardless of its validity, it's not very trustworthy. And regardless of the motives of the Pharisees, Jesus gives a very clear, authoritative, resounding answer to their warning. That's what we come to consider next in this text. It's the undeterred commitment of Christ to the mission of God. Verse 32 and 33. The undeterred mission of Christ. Jesus begins in verse 32 his response with a Jewish idiom. Go and tell that fox. When I first read that it sounded like something my grandfather would say. What Jesus is saying is actually very clear to his listeners, very clear to the Pharisees. Fox was a widely used Jewish slang term 
during Jesus' time. And it meant one of two things depending on its context, how it was used. It meant either a sly, crafty, sneaky, deceiving individual or it meant smaller game or someone that's really not that big of a deal, nothing to worry about, or insignificant. I think Christ is using the word and the term in both senses. Herod was a sly and deceitful and crafty and sneaky individual. We know that from history. He was not a man who walked a straight path. He was not a man worthy of honor. In fact, in his own time, by his own people and by other political leaders in the world, he would be charged with stockpiling weapons. He would be classified as a tyrant and a dictator with unjust behavior towards people, a murderer. He was not well thought of. He was a fox. He's also, in spite of all of his wickedness and his wicked acts and his sneaky, sly, deceitful personality in life, he's also not that big of a deal to Jesus. He's insignificant. He doesn't stand as a true obstacle of concern to Christ, does he? What Jesus is saying, essentially, in verse 32 is, it's not that big a deal to me. Go and tell that insignificant fox the truth. That he's no match for me. His warning is an idle threat. Insignificant to my mission. Interestingly enough, Herod is the only person Jesus treats with contempt in the Gospels. We see many interactions of our Lord with individuals and groups of people, Herod is the only one that he has zero regard for. At times, Christ shows divine patience for the Pharisees, doesn't he? He'll take time occasionally to explain something to them, to teach them, even to extend an offer of repentance to them. For Three or three and a half years, he shows great patience for his betrayer, Judas, doesn't he? He allows him access. He gives him a job to do. He's in charge of the money. And no surprise to him would eventually betray him. He even shows great patience for Pilate when he's on trial and Pilate's questioning him. Jesus gives him answers. Jesus points him to the truth of who he is. I am a king, and my kingdom's not of this world. And yet, at his trial, he's taken before Herod, because Herod is in Jerusalem at the time, and he shows no regard for him. In Luke chapter 23, the next time we encounter Herod, Jesus is in his presence. In verse 6 through 9, we see their interaction. Luke 23, verse 6, When Pilate heard this, that Jesus was a Galilean, he asked the man, 
He asked whether Jesus was a Galilean. And in verse 7, when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. That may mean the Pharisees were lying when they issued their threat and warning. Verse 9, so Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but... Jesus made no answer to him. However long Christ was in Herod's presence being interrogated and investigated and questioned, we can assume it's for some good amount of time because Herod was hoping to see some miracle and, and years of hoping to witness Christ and, and see what all the fuss was about this man Jesus. He's not just going to quickly let him go. So maybe hours Jesus is with Herod and not once does he speak to him. Leon Morris says this, rightly so. He says, when Jesus has nothing to say to a man, that man's position is hopeless. And here in the presence of Herod, Jesus has nothing to say to the man. This is the only actual account we have of Jesus speaking to Herod. And he speaks to him through the Pharisees. Go and tell that fox, your threat is insignificant. It means nothing to me. Jesus does not fear Herod. He's nothing more than a fox. He's not worth fleeing from. By comparison, Jesus answers in verse 32, let me tell you who I am. I want you to go back, tell Herod what kind of power I possess. Look at what he says. Go tell that insignificant fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today. It, it's a power statement. It's a divine declaration. Herod, you want to know what true authority looks like and true power looks like? The evil spirits of the world flee my presence. At the very breath of my mouth, demons are cast out. At the very breath of my mouth, infirmity and diseases flee the human body of other individuals. I have the power to speak over your own health. The Gentile centurion knew that, right? Jesus, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. Because I have soldiers under me and when I say do this, they do it. And I know your authority, Jesus. When you say something, it is done. Jesus says, you are right. He says the same thing here to Herod. You want to know what true power and authority looks like? I cast out demons. I heal diseases. I have power over the spiritual. I have power over the natural. Do you really think you're a match for me? It's a shockingly bold declaration to the gentleman who is in complete political national power over the region. The guy who's supported by Rome has the army of Rome at his back. Jesus stands against and says, you're no match. Do you really think I should be scared? Do you really think I should be deterred from my mission? Christ knows full well 
the reality that he has far more authority and power than Herod could ever hope. And that any worldly power or any human being has no say over him. Even in John chapter 19, when he's standing before Pilate, verse 10 and 11, Pilate makes this statement, You will not speak to me, Jesus? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus knows full well this is an idle threat from a man who has no authority over me. I will not flee. I will not run. I think there's a valuable lesson for us, church. We need not be afraid that our Lord will be overcome or stopped by anyone or anything. Nothing gets in the way of Christ. Nothing gets Him off His mission. Nothing makes Him cower down in fear. No one can stand against Him. The Lord goes on in verse 32 and 33 using another Hebrew idiom. He says, tell the fox that I cast out demons, I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, and he repeats it in another fashion, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. What he's saying here is I'm not going to be shaken, I'm going to be undeterred in my mission. It will absolutely be accomplished. Nothing will stop Jesus. He's persistent, isn't he? When his heart is fixed on something, including you or I, he is persistent in its pursuit. Nothing will stop me. He's not ever, nor will he ever be, at the whim of some earthly tyrant. Jesus is under the divine directive of God. It is God who determines his mission. It is God who determines his life. It is God who determines his coming and his going. Now this Hebrew idiom, back to it, this phrase, it does have a meaning. Meaning, It was also common language during the time of Jesus. And it means in a short time. Today, tomorrow, and the third day. Or today and tomorrow and the following day. It was common language to say in just a short time this will be accomplished that's what Christ is talking about here now he could be saying that in a short amount of time he would be finished working in Herod's territory and he'd move on to Jerusalem that's going to be true in a short time he's going to leave Perea and not come back and he's going to be going towards Jerusalem and that's where he will be crucified if that's the case that means he will never stop his work short of its completion Not only does our Lord do all things to the highest quality, He does all things to its full completion, doesn't He? Including the plan of redemption, including our salvation, Philippians 1.6. Sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. Christ is a man set towards Jerusalem and He's saying, I'll see my work through. I'm not finished yet, but in a short 
amount of time, I will. Maybe he's talking about leaving Herod's territory for Jerusalem. Or maybe for us as readers, it shows us something else. Because doesn't the language make us run immediately to the resurrection? This day and that day and the third day, my work will be completed. Most surely it does. Maybe Christ is saying, and I like to think so, that in a short time, he will accomplish his entire mission of redemption and salvation. Just a short time longer, he goes to Jerusalem to die. And in a short while after that, he will resurrect in victory. What kind of power will be on display then? You think casting out demons is a big deal, and you think healing diseases is a big deal. Raise yourself from the dead. That's a big deal. And in a short time, he will. Herod's threat is nothing to Christ. I've come this far, and in a short while, it will all be finished. In a short while, I'm going to resurrect from the grave. Herod, what is your threat to me? Do you think you will deter me? No. What's Herod to do? What's the devil to do? What is the world around him to do? What are the Pharisees to do to stop such devotion to the mission? He is undeterred in his commitment to your salvation. That's our Savior Church. That's our Jesus. The Lord even points to the cross Himself in verse 33. He says, A prophet should not perish away from Jerusalem. Now, that's an intriguing statement, isn't it? It's interesting because the truth is, several Old Testament prophets perished away from Jerusalem. John the Baptist being the most recent. The Bible calls John the Baptist a prophet. He didn't die in Jerusalem. So Jesus is not saying a general, uh, applicable to all prophets kind of statement at the end of verse 33. Nor is he saying a specific statement applied to specific prophets other than himself. He is only talking about himself in verse 33 when he said a prophet should not perish away from Jerusalem. And what he means is that here is no threat to me because all things will be accomplished where God wants them accomplished. When God wants them accomplished, how God wants them accomplished, where God wants them accomplished, and He wants them accomplished in Jerusalem, in the capital city, in the place of the governing body, the Sanhedrin, in the city of God Himself, where the temple stands, where God dwells with His people. Jesus says, that's where I go, and I cannot and will not perish apart from that place. God dwells there, and God must die there. It's the place where any prophet would be put on trial, convicted, and formally executed, especially the prophet of God in the plan of God. Jerusalem is the goal, and that's where his heart is set. So he's undeterred by Herod's threat, and instead, we find him steadfast in his commitment to go to Jerusalem for the express purpose of dying for sinners. Christ knows what awaits in Jerusalem. It's not a happy ending for him. It ultimately is in the resurrection. But what awaits 
his wrath, torment, punishment for sin that he didn't commit. And yet he says, I am I'm resolved and unmovable in this fact. I go to Jerusalem. There I die. There I'm crucified. Many people in our world church have tried. They still try. They'll always try and they wish they could thwart the purposes of God. They wish they could stop the work of Christ. Communist governments in the world today say you cannot proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And yet what's happening? The gospel of Jesus is flourishing there. Other countries in the world says Christianity is illegal. You have to adhere to this religion. And yet what's happening there? The gospel is flourishing. Our own society. Let's redefine morals and let's uh, cast aside the word of God and let's uh, redefine truth and even redefine God himself so it'll better suit us. And what happens, even in the light of hostility in our own society, God's work is not stopped. People have always tried to get in the way of God's plan and it's never, never worked. Our Savior had his heart set to die in Jerusalem and there would be nothing to get in the way of it. Take heart again, O church, that when Jesus is determined to do something, it will be accomplished. You have no fear to lose your salvation for Christ has promised to give it to you. Christ does not leave something half done. This gives us strength to face the wretched world that we live in and endure the burden life that we have to live from time to time. It helps us to realize that there is no difficulty too great or trouble too horrible that our Savior would be undeterred in seeing our salvation to completion. That we will, in a short time, finally be glorified with Christ in heaven where sin will be no more. Praise God. That the sin that so corrupts our souls and trips us up time and again and ruins our walk with God and clogs our fellowship with our Savior will finally be put to death because Christ will be undeterred in seeing you justified, sanctified, and finally glorified with Him in heaven. It means for us that sin does not, for the Christian, have the final word. Jesus does. And in 10,000 years from now, church, it will not be your addiction. It will not be your pride. It will not be your unbelief. It will not be whatever trips you up and, and makes you struggle now that will be marking you. It will be the grace of an undeterred Savior that marks you. 10,000 years from now, 10 million years from now, far beyond what our minds can fathom, it will be the grace of of an undeterred, completely dedicated Jesus that marks you forever. That's what we learn from this Savior. We celebrate when Jesus says, Herod's threat is nothing to me. I am set to Jerusalem. I'm set. Can you endure with me for a few more verses? 
Because Jesus seizes the opportunity to, to not just show his undeterred commitment to the mission, but he also seizes the moment to reveal the mission of his heart. In verse 34 and 35, Christ is unfailing in his desire to save. These are the two verses that are recorded elsewhere in Matthew. And we find that he's been undeterred in his commitment to the mission and work of God. Now we find he's unfailing in his desire to save. In verse 34, we see raw vulnerability of this heart. He laments over Jerusalem. He laments because he longs to care for them and they won't have it. He laments because Jerusalem, his people, are hostile towards God and hostile towards his people. Lament meaning sorrowful, burdened, broken. We find in verse 34 and 35 what breaks the heart of God. A clear picture of what matters most to Jesus. In verse 34, he likens himself to a mother hen caring for her brood, protecting her chicks. He identifies Jerusalem as the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to, to it. He knows their hostility towards the people and things and purpose of God. But then he says, how often I would have Gathered your children together. It's a longing expression of love. How often I have desired, yearned to embrace you, to welcome you, to make you mine, to hold you to, to, to me fastly. Just like a mother hen would feed and and watch over her chicks and care for her chicks and raise them up. Jesus longs for the same thing with Jerusalem. And not just with Jerusalem, church, but with the world, with His creation. This is a universally applicable statement. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the center of the world, humanity. How often I've longed to bring you to me. Church, this is nothing less than a picture of extreme and divine compassion and care for those who do not deserve it. Christ most certainly knew of the hostility of Jerusalem. He mentions it, and He certainly knew the full history of that hostility, right? He's dealt with the Pharisees enough even in his brief time on earth, if he wasn't all-knowing, which he was, even if he wasn't, he's dealt with the Pharisees en enough to know that you haven't gotten here overnight. You're stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people, and you have been for generations. Been hostile to God. Hostile to the people of God. And you yourselves were supposed to be the people of God and yet even in the face of the reality of their rejection Jesus still longs to gather them together as his own doesn't he that's the heart 
of our Savior. And even if they were willing to be gathered at this point, up to this point, I believe Jesus would have. Because He's so broken and sorrowful. The language of Christ in verse 34 shows a heart that is melting. Church, this is unfailing love, isn't it? We've seen Christ exemplify this before. When He looks at the people, the crowds of people in Jerusalem, and He has compassion on them. Why? Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Here's the judge, the ultimate final judge, who will condemn the, the unbelieving people who reject Him and, and dispense the wrath of God upon them. And yet, we find Him not wanting to do that. We find Him wanting to save. We find Him wanting to care and provide and redeem. Now, how all this works in the sovereign plan of God's salvation is difficult to say and would take a whole nother time to explain. But nonetheless, we can say in this text right here, we have a Savior who has a heart to save, doesn't He? And we see what pulls at his heart. It's the love for those who are lost, unworthy, hostile, sinful, and broken. Two lessons here. One, don't think you are too far for the love of Christ to reach you. And number two, don't think someone else is too far for the love of Christ to reach them. Christ looks at a rejecting, hostile people, in you and I even, and says, I long to gather you. And yet, to his dismay in this text, he has to pronounce the reality of their rejection, doesn't he? Look in verse 35, Behold, since you were not willing, behold, your house is forsaken. You might prosper, O Jerusalem. Your economic taxes might go up. Your, your social atmosphere might be alright. But you're forsaken by God. And nothing matters more than that. You're hopeless. It's not for lack of compassion and opportunity. It's because they are stubborn and stiff-necked people Take the warning. Don't be a stubborn and stiff-necked people. Be humbled under the mighty hand of Christ because it is there that you will be exalted and find life in the gentle and lowly heart of Christ. I fear many people still fit this mold today, don't they? Many people sit here today and they face the loving reality of an unfailing, compassionate Savior, and they remain stubborn and stiff-necked in their sin. They wallow in the muck of their own sinful vomit. While a banquet is prepared, they are like a dog eating the garbage. Don't be a dog eating the garbage. There's a loving Savior with arms extended, arms of grace and mercy. And yet, most people want to reject and run from Him. This is nothing less than heartbreaking for God. Our Savior is dismayed at such reality. 
He's willing to pay the ultimate price so that sinners like this might actually be saved. And He offers that salvation and yet they stubbornly refuse it. And their rejection is nothing short of damning, isn't it? Those who reject Jesus Christ will not see Christ until what He says in verse 35, until you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. It's difficult to interpret what Christ is saying right there. What He means. There are two possibilities here. It may mean you won't see slash realize Christ until you have a change of heart. Until you're able to say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Until God rots regeneration in you. Or it may mean you won't see me again until my return where you will finally be forced to realize who I am. Philippians 2, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You may reject me now. One day you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because you will be forced to. And then you'll see me in my glory, in my reality. Either way, the truth is still the same. No one sees the Lord until they submit and honor the Lord. And so He extends compassion and mercy even now, calling us to refuse our sin and, and turn to Him for salva salvation, to submit to Him and honor Him and be given the eyes to see Him and behold His beauty and His glory. It's heartbreaking reality to God that people would reject such a kind and gracious offer. And therefore, church, it should be heartbreaking to us as well, shouldn't it? It should burden our hearts. We ought to be lamenting like Christ. Lamenting in prayer for those who reject the Gospel. Pleading with God to do a work in their hearts that they might see and believe. And we ought to lament every time we fail to share the Gospel. Not giving someone an opportunity to repent and believe. Whatever makes the heart of Christ broken should break our hearts as well. And yet, we also celebrate at a text like this because this Jesus who would have such mercy and compassion displayed in this text has mercy and compassion for us. This is the heart of our Lord. And the truth is, we are the rejecting people of Jerusalem. And yet... Christ did not give up on us, did He? He's undeterred in His commitment and unfailing in His desire to love. And because of those two things combined, we have an eternity with Him. A hope that can be unshaken. A confidence that is strong and sturdy. That's our Savior. We need not to fear, O church. Jesus will not be deterred and nor will He grow tired of showing mercy and making your salvation a reality and bringing it to its fullness. This means two things as I wrap up. Number one, in evangelism, it means He has not done saving sinners in the world today. And this is still His heart today. 
a heart of compassion, a heart of mercy, a heart of grace and love, even for those who reject right now. Christ is not giving up, and you and I had better not either. We ought to be a church passionate about the things of our Savior, of our head. And what is He passionate about? The salvation of the world. To the point that Herod's threats are nothing to Him, and His heart beats for their forgiveness and redemption. Number two, what does this mean for us? It means that we are to enjoy grace and growth in Christ. That the regret and the shame and the guilt and the fear that sin produces in our lives is no match for the unfailing love of Jesus Christ for you. Are you questioning if Jesus loves enough? Look at how He acts towards those who have rejected Him. Long to gather you together. Oh, the enemy is good at taking our acts of sin and heaping shame and guilt upon us for weeks and days and even months and years. How many of us have lived in years of shame and guilt over sin? And yet here's a Savior who says, I love you more. Where sin increased, grace increased the more. The enemy has no bearing on our lives anymore. Yes, we fail miserably and we do so often and we long for the coming of Christ that we might be freed and liberated once for all from the sin that clings, clings so tightly to our hearts. And yet, that sin does not separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing does, Romans 8. And that's what we find to be true of Jesus here. Church, evangelize because that's what Christ would do and that's what matters to Christ. He's showing compassion and mercy to rejecting sinners today. And then enjoy the grace of God because here's what His heart looks like to those who have rejected Him. How much more is it filled with love for those who have embraced Him and He has embraced? Enjoy that love and that grace. God, I thank You that You have made Yourself known in Your Word and we are able to witness You in such beauty and such glory and, and magnificence and splendor, O oh Lord. And I pray Your Word is compelling to us. It's able to hold our attention. O oh Lord, I, I pray it's the the enjoyment of our hearts this morning. To be able to see You in such a, a fashion as this. I'm so thankful that Herod's idle threat or the Pharisees' lie, whichever it was, Lord, didn't deter You from Your work and Your mission. Even at that moment in a short time, You knew resurrection lays on the horizon. And I thank You, Lord, that You love sinners because if You didn't, I wouldn't be here. But because You do, we can know You and Your salvation. Help us to love sinners like You do. And help us to live and to walk in Your love. It's sometimes hard to believe, Lord, and hard to remember and apply to our own lives. 
Would you apply it to us by your Spirit for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.